All right, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. And I could say it much faster than that even, but I don't need to. It is our doctrinal statement of faith. And so uh, we have adopted a much broader statement of faith than most churches do. Most churches have a one, two-page doctrinal statement of faith. Uh, some are a little longer. Uh, some are very short. And um, we've talked about this before. We talked about creeds and confessions at the beginning of this uh, go-through of the uh, 1689. And that is that there are some creeds that are a sentence. What do you believe? You know, Peter, Christ as Peter. Who am I? You know, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is not a question about uh, what we believe as much as it's a broader explanation of what we believe. So that's what our statement of faith, that's what everyone's statement of faith usually is, kind of states the biggies of what they believe. Uh, we've adopted one that's a little fuller. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession uh, was uh, basically the go-to Baptist doctrinal statement for uh, several centuries. It wasn't until uh, we get to the 20th century where you see a, a divergence from that. There, actually, there was some divergence in the 18th century, but uh, for the most part, it really didn't happen uh, until the 19th century. And there's been other confessions that have been based on the 1689 that have uh, then just taken it and slightly modified it for their own, uh, New Hampshire Confession others, but um, this is the one that we've adopted, the historic one. So we're working our way through it. It is divided up into chapters. Each chapter represents a major uh, doctrine. And then within that, of course, there are many subdoctrines. And the first one, of course, is the Scriptures. So chapter 1 is of the Holy Scriptures, and this is the reason that uh, uh, the rest of the doctrines all exist as they're explained in the Scripture. If we don't understand the Scripture, the validity of the Scripture, everything else falls apart. If it, otherwise, it's made up. Otherwise, this is Mormonism. This is Joseph Smith hearing in a hat and dictating what he's told. So he claimed. That's how he translated the Book of Mormon, if you didn't know that. Literally put his head in the hat. Anyway, it must have been a pretty good size hat. But anyway, I don't know. Uh, so we're working our way through this and understanding the scriptures. We talked about some of the sub, I kind of say sub doctrines of scripture, like the sufficiency of scripture. What is scripture sufficient to do? Is scripture completely omnisufficient? Is it omnisufficient? Just nod your heads. I don't embarrass you. No, it's not. Well, the scripture omnisufficiency would mean the scriptures are sufficient for everything. Will the scriptures tell you how to fix a tractor? No. Will they tell you how to mow the lawn? No. Will they tell you how to work a sound system? No. They won't do any of those things. Why? That's not what it applies to. However, it is sufficient for all information regarding God how we are to conduct ourselves, and what is necessary for eternal salvation. Scripture is, a, is sufficient to that. Now, this becomes a huge issue because if the Scripture is sufficient for that, any additions to that would be inferring that Scripture was not sufficient. Right? So, if somebody says... Some of you might not be used to this yet, but the rest of you are. Sometimes I can step on your toes. It's not on purpose, okay? So I don't know if any of you have this in a family member or something else like that. If somebody says, I was in the hospital, I died on the table, Jesus appeared to me, and he gave me a message and told me I should come back and share that message. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. How do we know? Because that would mean the scriptures are not sufficient. That would mean we need additional revelation to be given to us. Do you understand? If the scriptures are sufficient, they're sufficient. If there's enough there, there's enough there. Now we say, well, wait a minute. I understand what you're saying, but what about commentary? What? What about, what about preaching? What about what you're doing? Fair question. If someone is preaching or giving commentary or teaching and they equate what they're doing to the Scripture, they're a heretic. It's that simple. When someone is explaining what the Scriptures say, that's different. Right? If you think about it, this is what Christ did continuously in his ministry. Did he not? This is what the apostles did, and we see it in their books. What? They explained what the Scriptures of the Old Testament said and how they were Christ and Christ fulfilled. They explain what was meant in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, right? 
Paul, what's his big argument? Paul's big argument about how Christ is the fulfillment of the, of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham that his seed, and he makes the argument about seed, seeds. One letter. Plurality. That was his whole argument. It wasn't seeds like all the people. It was seed is in Christ. That's what his argument is. So what's he doing? He's explaining the Old Testament. Does that mean the Old Testament wasn't sufficient? No. He's explaining it. Just like Peter says, some things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. But they're still the Scripture. They're still there for us. So sometimes we do have to unpack them and understand them and to understand them better. This is why it matters to us which version and translation we use. Why? They're not all the same. Why are they different? What's the discrepancy? Why do some have some verses and some don't have those verses? Completely missing. Why do some have different words? Which one's right? And this brings up the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. What is verbal plenary inspiration? Verbal plenary inspiration means that God inspired every single word for the entire scripture. He guided the hand, so to speak, of the authors as they penned their original writings of the scripture. He didn't give them an idea, and they had to figure out how to express it. He gave them the exact words. He gave them the exact words. So does it matter to us which version we use? It should, because if one is different than the other, one may be correct and one may not be correct. So it matters. It matters. Now you say, well, yeah, but aren't they little things? I'm so glad you asked that. That was an awesome segue into exactly where we are today, which is going to be comparing these these versions so that you can see the differences and you can judge yourself whether they are significant or not. Now, as we've worked up to this point, that was kind of a segue, but now I'm rabbit trail again. Anyway, as we worked up to this point, we have been talking about basically the two New Testament Greeks, two versions. One has been called the received text, and one is the modern critical text. Now, there is also this other term out there called the majority text. Be very careful about the majority text. Just like you would be careful if you're talking about government and you're talking about federalists or anti-federalists. Why? Because the anti-federalists adopt the federalists as what they were, when indeed they were actually anti-federalists, but it doesn't sound good to be anti-anything. So they said they were federalists. So the anti-federalists became the ones who were actually federalists. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, they grabbed a name that they thought would actually be more adopted. Same is true with the majority text. If you just go by the simple definition of the majority text is the majority of the ancient Greek manuscripts and which one they agree with, they agree with the received text. The received text is the majority text. But that's not what's claimed today. The claim today is, is that the majority text is the modern critical text. Those based on Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. We talked about those texts, what they were. How is that called the majority text? Because the claim is, it's accepted by the majority of the church today. Interesting. That the received text was literally called the received text because it was received by the church. So the claim today, same thing. We're going to take the claims on the other one and make it on ours. All right. So we began talking about how the Textus Receptus, or the received text, uh, came to be used to develop a few different Bibles, the pinnacle of which was the King James Bible, 1611. We talked about the process that led to that. The Geneva Bible was certainly significant, Tyndale Bible, etc. That led up to the King James Bible. Was the King James Bible perfect? Was it inspired? We do not believe so, not at all. We believe, however, that it is as close as any to the original received text or in those autographs that were originally written by the authors of the New Testament. The modern critical text was not based on that. It was based on the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus texts, which were not found and actually published until the 1800s. The two men who got those two texts together and worked together to come up with the first Greek New Testament based on those 
were Westcott and Hort. And Westcott and Hort worked together for several years until they developed this Greek New Testament and published it. Now, last week, we spent a good amount of time going through quotes by both of these men uh, and what their views of the Scripture was. And it was, I think you, those of you who were, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. Those of you who were here two weeks ago and went through that, uh, I think you would wholeheartedly agree with me, very clearly these men were not believers. Very clearly they weren't believers. In fact, some of them direct statements about it. One of them making the statement that Darwin's book was better than the Scriptures and more accurate than the Scriptures. This is the guys who were actually taking Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and translating into Greek. By the way, that's where we have the two majority, majorly used Greek New Testament translations today are from Westcott and Hort's work. Now, as we went through it, I talked about Origen. I talked about the theology school at Alexandria and how uh, the heretical views that they held uh, were influential. This is where Arius came out of, and Arianism, which was struck down by the church, the Nicene Creed and um, the Athanasian Creed, both responses to Arianism. That heresy still exists today. Who was Christ? A created being, not God. A God, not God. That's Arianism. So, if you wrote a Bible and you didn't want it to conflict what you believed, what would you want to do? You would want to take out the parts that disagree with you, would you not? Is anyone familiar with when the Jehovah's Witness published the Bible that they use today? How about, guess a decade? What? Anybody else? It was the 90s. Why? See, if you actually witnessed a Jehovah's Witness in the 80s, it was shooting fish in a barrel. It was really easy because they would hold this thing that Christ was not God. And then you could just show them the scriptures where it directly said that Christ was God in their own Bibles. Many a Jehovah's Witness said, you know what, I need to talk to someone about that and I'll get back with you. And they'd scurry it out. Why? Because their own Bible showed that what they were saying was wrong. So what'd they do? Come up with another Bible. Changed it. Changed it. So if you wanted to prove, as followers of Arianism, that, or Origen, that Christ was not God, you would have to do something concerted, in a way, to make the Scriptures prove that less. And you're going to see today, that's exactly what happened in the modern critical text. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, two books marked and set aside as heretical and false, then used to create the Bibles that most translations are made from today. All right, so last week, the last thing we covered was some quotes by, this is a quote by Hort, we talked to Westcott, then we went somewhere, here's some, uh, this is actually, well, forget it, this is just, this is just fun quotes from Hort. All right. So now we're going to talk about what is the summary of their beliefs. So this is, this is really where the rubber meets the road here. Earlier works before 1881 by Westcott were writings on the validity of the Apocrypha and the Latin Vulgate. Before he worked on this, he was writing about how the Latin Vulgate was correct. Roman Catholic. Westcott and Hort rejected the authority of scriptures. They, you saw the quotes about this, every one of these. They rejected the authority of scriptures. They denied the inerrancy of the scripture. They rejected biblical salvation, the reality of hell, substitutionary atonement, denied the divinity of Christ, and made him a created being to be worshipped with Mary, his mother, denied the New Testament miracles were real, and openly admitted that their trifling alterations with the Greek text have begun a new period in Christian history. you understand the import of that? Okay. Let me, let me not overstate it. They're burning in hell. These men purposefully tried to start a new period in church history. They purposefully altered the text. Why? Because they didn't believe all those things that are the most important doctrines that we believe. You take those doctrines away, there's no Christianity. There's feel-good time with potlucks. 
I could overstate, but I'll, it's probably not. Westcott and Hort used a handful of obscure and corrupted manuscripts and discarded the traditional text handed down through the centuries and still in use by the church. The modern textual criticism method that they pioneered automatically assumes that an older manuscript is more accurate, dismissing the possibility of early corruptions by heretics. That's where we are today. If a new piece of the scripture is found from 400 years ago, and it varies from the scripture, those who work on the Greek translations today, particularly the Nestle Allen, say we must change the New Testament Greek to match that piece. Why? It's old. It's got to be more accurate. Is everything that's written accurate? Is there a possibility that somebody wrote something who was a heretic? Of course. Their modern textual criticism stated that the Bible should be treated as any other book would be, which contradicted 1,800 years of treatment by the church and providential preservation by God. They actually utilized textual criticism to determine the text to an extent that even modern textual critics don't agree with or use. I want Let that sink in for a second. The basis of today's New Testament Greek, the Nestle Allen New Testament Greek today, was created by Westcott and Hort. Today's modern Christian, modern textual critics don't even use the same methods that they use because they know that they're, they're illogical. They don't make sense. So you'd say, well, they probably went back, right? And they fixed it. No. 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 And you can see the issue, right? So they work with copies of the scripture that did not come forward for 1,800 years. What was the church doing 1,800 years? They didn't have God's word? They had false God's word? 1,800 years? You see any problems with this? This is what God would do? That, that alone should bring up some pretty big questions, right? At least. At least bring up questions. If you don't have any answers, all right. What do you have to believe to accept Westcott and Hort theory of what the correct manuscripts were? All right. So if you think that they're right, here's what you have to believe. This is what you would include. You have to believe that people who believed in the deity of Christ often corrupt Bible manuscripts. Why? Because they're so corrupt. Because they talk about Christ being God. You have to believe that people who deny the deity of Christ never corrupt Bible manuscripts. You understand? In other words, if the manuscript does not acknowledge Christ's deity, that must be correct. But everyone that says Christ is God... That must be incorrect. See the difference? You have to believe that people who died to get the gospel to the world couldn't be trusted with the Bible. Why? They use corrupt manuscripts. You have to believe that their killers could be trusted. You understand that that's what happened in England, right? That's what happened all over Europe. You have to believe that the Celtic Christians, the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Henrichians, the Petrobrusians, the Paulicians, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Protestant churches, the Anabaptists, and the Baptists all did not have the pure word of God. They all had corrupt Bibles for 1,800 years. You have to believe that the Roman Catholic and the 19th century rationalists did have the pure word of God. They're the only ones. Hmm. The textual criti criticism philosophies applied to the MCT and still in use today require it to be continually they require it to continually be updated, specifically because culture changes and they must change the way the text communicates to its readers. All right, so before you start reading the state the stats Understand the concept here. Modern critical text says that the text of the scripture becomes the scripture when you understand it. And because culture changes, we must change what the scripture says because people don't interpret things the same way. All right? So there are so many examples I could give of this, but you just have to think of a word or a phrase or a concept that's used today 
that did not mean the same thing 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, right? There's many. There's many. That's the whole idea. You have to change this because culture changes. People don't take things the same way, so we must change it so that it's more understandable. This is why a lot of new translations don't criticize homosexuality. Why? Well, the culture's accepted that now, so the scriptures have to reflect that. Who, what's leading who? All right, example. The 1984 NIV versus the 2011 NIV. 12,056 verses are different. 12,056 verses changed. That's 38.8% of the total. You say, oh, I got an NIV. Which one? You got the 12,000 new changes or you got the, which one was right? Are they both right? And why did they change it? The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood mandates changes, including mandated changes, including changing an apostle to a woman and a female servant of the church to a deacon. So you heard of churches that talk about women could be deacons? Where'd that come from? Modern critical text. Modern critical text. Was it in the Greek? No. It is now. See any problems there? There's a whole lot of other scriptures that have to change to make that okay. They changed all gender specific to gender neutral. In some cases, changing to specify women only instead of people. This is a cultural council. They were trying to make the scripture match our culture. What's the second possible motive? Profit. Profit. This is the age-old thing, right? Why is something happening? Follow the money. True a lot. True a lot. All new versions have copyrights and their resultant royalties. For a copyright to be, to be issued... The work must include, this is according to our copyright laws, substantial new materials and changes to any previously published work. They must make changes to make it copyrightable. Promises for all new versions are that they are more easily understood and understandable for today's generation. You understand, the NIV would have to change enough of the NIV Bible to produce a new copyright to be able to make money. If they didn't change enough, they wouldn't be able to publish it separately and the original copyright would run out and then they would be in trouble. Notice that it's by previously published work. It's not even something that you previously did or the same title. It's just a previously published work. So the King James Bible, published in 1611, you'd have to have substantial changes from any Bible in order to copyright it. So think about all the new translations. They all had to change substantially from a previously published work. That's significant. That's significant. Now you say, well, what if they didn't copyright it? That's a great point. So which one wasn't copyrighted? There hasn't been any. See, well, everybody pretty much appreciates the NAS. That's copyrighted. It's licensed. You can't download it for free. Pick one. ESV? New King James? They're all copyrighted. Why? Profit. I mean, let's not be fools. A person, a company that hires a whole bunch of people to work on coming up with a new, a new Bible, right? All of the page layouts, all that stuff, right? They have to make money to pay those people. Are you with me on this? They do. But let me ask you a question. Did they stop printing the King James? No. Do they have the copyright? No. How do they make money? By selling the Bibles. You understand? So there is a way still for them to make money by publishing Bibles. But what is the goal in the end? 
Is it to publish Bibles? Or is it to make money? All right. Now, comparisons of the authorized to the MCT or modern critical text-based translations. There are a number of verses and complete passages that are missing in the MCT-based versions, and here are some of them. So, I'm not going to read every one of those verses, but I want you to note that there are some here that look like they could be significant, and that's because they are. So let me read you a couple of them. See, how would this be if, you're, if this was missing from your Bible? Ready? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Gone. Not in there. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Is that significant to you? Mark 16, 9 through 20. Won't read the whole thing. You'd recognize it. But this is when Christ appears to Mary. And then what happens subsequent to that? Kind of an important interaction. Uh, Acts 8.37. So this is the Ethiopian eunuch. Now imagine taking this verse out of that story, which, by the way, is not very long. That story, if you read that story, it's not very long. Acts 8.37. So here's what happens. The eunuch says to him, he's reading the scriptures, right? Philip appears. He asks him if he can explain it to him. Well, Philip basically extends the gospel to him. Here's what the eunuch says. What, what stops me from being baptized right now? Here's what the answer is that's not in modern critical text. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That changes the story. Take that out. All right. There appears to be a systematic attack on the Bible translated from the modern critical text paralleling the doctrines that were challenged by the heresies of Alexandria and the Roman Catholic Church, and here's what they include. Here's what they include. Now, I will say this. As you work your way through some of these texts, so if you have an NIV, an NAS, whatever, you have one of these ones that are based on the modern critical text, and you're, you're probably wondering, well, which ones are? I'm going to show you that. Uh, but if you have one that's based on this, you might find some of these verses in your Bible. They're not in all of them. In some verse, some scriptures, some uh, passages, they have actually based their Greek on the Nestle Allen, but they've added verses in because they knew that people wanted the verses. Now, how do we know this? Well, because the, tra- the chief translator of the NAS explained it, that that's what they did. All right. So this apparent systematic attack on the Bible, here are some of the, some of the challenges that are an issue. Attacks on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and denial of his deity. In other words, first they deny that Jesus was God. So here we are. 1 Timothy 3.16. Should be a familiar verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seed of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. In the NIV and the NIS, the ISV, which is in the New King James, changed God to he, CEV changed Christ to came as a human. In other words, instead of God was manifest, it's he was manifest. Now, you'll see the New King James in quotes, in parentheses. And the reason you see it in parentheses is because the text of the New King James does not make the change. The footnote does. So the footnotes will say a better translation is or original Greek or it'll make some reference to it shouldn't be that way, it should be this way. So that's why we put it. So the text of the New King James, great. But the footnote's bad. So they changed God was, made, was manifest in the flesh to he was manifest in the flesh. Do you see it's subtly taking God out of the picture? They had to do it. Jude 1.4, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do they do? They change it to from Lord God to Sovereign and Lord. Others change Lord God to Master and Lord. 
Why? Again, it's this effort to, re- and we're not going to show them all. Okay, we wait up months. But this idea of taking away verses that refer to Christ as God. To the wise, to, our, to the only wise, God and Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Now we use this as a benediction. Jude one twenty five. So what do they do? Well, they add through or because of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, after God and our, God and our Savior, they add through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is that a shift? Because it's saying that Jesus Christ our Lord is not God our Savior. See the difference? Romans 14, 10 through 12. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall be all stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account to, of, of himself to God. So what does the change? They change Christ here to God. This also denies the truth of, this, of Jesus' statement in John 5.22 that all judgment has been committed to him. It's also in Revelation 20.12. In other words, if you take away Christ and you say God, now what Christ said about that he would be the one that judges everything, not so true. Revelation 6, 1.6-11 hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle, it is called Patmos, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, of that which was, that, um, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. So what did they do? They changed God and his Father to his God and Father. Is there a difference? There is a difference. And they deleted the phrase, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, from verse 11. Why is that important? Well, Jehovah's Witness specifically talk about how verse 8 is about the Father, not about the Son. This one. It's confirmed here. Take out the first one. Now it's not Christ. It's God the Father. Micah 5.2, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be lifted among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall be... Thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that which is ruler that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So they change from everlasting to ancient times. See? Christ will come, but not from everlasting, from ancient times. See the difference? He's created, not God. Second Thessalonians two two that ye have not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So this is the day of the Lord. Now this is a passage that we use to signify that the New Testament day of Christ is the Old Testament day of the Lord, that Christ is the Lord of the Old Testament. This is a critical passage for us. It's changed. It's changed. 1 Corinthians 10, 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. They changed Christ to the Lord. Let us, neither let us tempt the Lord, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Why is that important? Because it's saying that Christ was not Jehovah the Old Testament. It's taking Christ out of the Old Testament. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is, with, that is in you with meekness and fear. So what do they change? They change Lord God to Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. <coughs> Taking away his deity. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. They changed it from the Lord to Lord. Is there a difference between 
the Lord and Lord. Sure. Of course. Here's a denial that Jesus is the Son of God. Or some verses. John 6, 69. We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you recognize this? They changed Christ, the Son of the living God, to Holy One of God. See a difference? Christ, the Son of the living God, to Holy One of God. There's a big difference. Note 1 Thessalonians 3.13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notes this. Here's the angels. Matthew 25, 31. Then the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So therefore, this, the change denies that he is the Son of God, also denies that he is the Christ. See, if this is true, then this is false. John nine thirty five. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found them, he said unto them, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Well, they changed it to Son of Man. Now that's important. Was Christ the Son of Man? He was. Called himself the Son of Man. That was an Old Testament reference that signified that he was the Messiah. So can't we just use that interchangeably? No. Because if he's trying to prove that he is the Son of God, and he makes a statement to them to reflect his Godhead, you don't want to take that away. That's exactly what happened in this passage. They changed it. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Unto you first God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him by, to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. This changed son to servant. His servant, Jesus. His servant, Jesus. Is there a problem? Not his son, just his servant? Galatians 4, 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. If we are no more a servant, how much more is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, a son and not a servant? Do you see a difference? There's a difference. Big difference. Acts 4, 27-30, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, but both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. They changed holy child to holy servant. See, it's taken away son. It's taken away being a son of God. Just saying he's a servant of God. <clears throat> Acts 8, 36 and 37. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So this is what I refer, referred to earlier. Verse 37 is either completely deleted, or it's shown in brackets with a margin note that it doesn't belong in the Scripture. In this case, another proof text that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Luke 2. 33 and 43. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Well, the new came, all these versions, NIS, NAV, CV, ESV, ISV, NKJ, changed Joseph and his mother either to his father and mother or his parents. Now, can you see why there's a distinction here? Who was his biological mother? Mary. Was Joseph his biological father? No. And this is one of those proof texts where it says Joseph and his mother. Joseph and his mother. But they change it to parents. See the difference? Yeah. It's just another verse taking away him being God's son. For this cause I bow my knees, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3.14, for this cause I bow my knee unto the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they delete our Lord Jesus Christ completely. For this cause I know and bow my knees unto the Father. Matthew 23.8, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and ye are all, brethren, and all ye are brethren. 
Well, lady, the lady of in Christ. Lady, the lady of Christ. So look at these verses, this next verse as an as a, as a inference to this. And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. So what happens? They delete Christ, the first Christ, which is the title of authority, but they retain the later Christ, which was what type he was. So this is a reference to the demons, knowing that he was Christ, Son of God, God. They knew it. You see this numerous times in the scripture where demons recognized who he was without him saying anything. They knew who he was. One time, are you come to torment us? It's not yet the day. What that mean? They knew it wasn't judgment day. But here he is. Demons know who Christ is. They know. And they're afraid of him. He has authority over them. Scriptures reflect this. This is one of the passages that does. Reflects his deity. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we had heard him, we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So they just take out the Christ. This is the Savior of the world. Acts 2.30, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. So what do they do? They take out, according to the flesh, so the fruit of his loins, he would raise up Christ, and they change Christ to one of his descendants. So this is a reference, right, to the prophecy, says that the fruit of his loins, and he would raise up one of his descendants to sit on the throne. So it's not the flesh, and it's not Christ. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Well, they take out Christ. They should believe on Jesus. Here you go. Here's a few more for you to write down. Also deleted in John 6, 69, Acts 15, 11, 16, 11, 20, 21, Romans 1, 16, 16, 20, 16, 24, 1 Corinthians 5, 4, 9, 1, 9, 18, 16, 23 to 23, 2 Corinthians 11, 31, Galatians 3, 17, 4, 7, 1 Thessalonians 3, 11, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 12, Hebrews 3, 1, 1 John 1, 7, Revelation 1, 9 and 12, 17, etc. All verses changed to deny Christ. New Agers teach Christ's consciousness was attained by Jesus, but can also be attained by others, and that another Christ is coming. Good Bible for them. If Christ doesn't come in the flesh, who did come? Good question. So they describe this as Christ consciousness. That's reference to Another attack. And that is that Jesus is Lord. Luke 23, 42. You, you understand that. We see this, all the verses I just read, and all of these verses, this does seem to signify a pattern. Luke 23, 42. And he saith unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. They take out the word Lord. Who, who are we talking about here? Luke 23, 42. Who said that? Thief on the cross. See, his recognition that Jesus Christ was the Lord, he was Lord, he was Yahweh, that's who he was, is the faith that Christ recognizes when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It wasn't because he knew his name was Jesus. Are you with me on this? The first man, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is Lord from heaven. They take out Lord. Who are we talking about? Adam, the new Adam. That's what this passage is talking about. Take out the Lord. Second man is from heaven. Second Corinthians 4.10 Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our body. So they just take out the Lord. It's also removed in 1 John 1, 3, 2 Timothy 4.1, Acts 19.10, and 1 Corinthians 16.22. Right. Denial that Jesus was worshipped. Now, would that be an issue? Yeah. If he's not God, he shouldn't have been worshipped, right? 
Matthew 20, 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. So what do they do? Well, the NIV and the NKG changed worshiping him to kneeling down. The NAS changed bowing down, changed to bowing down, not worshiping. Now, while critical to our own doctrine, it should be noted that Jehovah's Witnesses' argument denying the deity of Christ is their claim that Jesus was not worshipped. That's one of the ways they claim he wasn't God, because they say he wasn't worshipped. So does it matter for us to take these things out of verses? It does. Also changed in Matthew 8, 2, 9, 18, 15, 25, Mark 5, 6, and Luke 24, 52. Equating Jesus with Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which does weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend unto the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now this should be a familiar passage to you. Because this is one of only a few passages of the scripture where we see Lucifer, Satan's intentions, and why he fell. His pride wanted to make him higher than the stars of heaven. It wanted to make him above the stars of God there. He will ascend the clouds, I'll be like the Most High. Now, if this passage is changed, how would they change it? They change hell to the grave. In verse 15, they change Lucifer to either morning star or bright morning star in the CIV, or day star in verse 12. Well, that's a huge problem, because morning star is an attribute ascribed only to Christ, not to Lucifer. So if you change this to morning star, or day star, you're equating Christ to Lucifer. Revelation 22.16, I... Jesus, have set mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Christ himself claims to be the bright and morning star. 2 Peter 1.19, we, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto the light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Who is this talking about? Christ. Take day star and morning star and use that instead of for words for Satan. Now, Christ and Satan are the same. New Agers deny Lucifer as Satan. They deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. They teach that Isaiah 14 is about Jesus, not Lucifer. Mormons and Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They're brothers. Going to the Mormon church at least the ones I've been in, they have a painting. Two guys look like Jesus. How do we know it looks like Jesus? We don't. It's the, it's the popular portrayal of Christ. Got long hair, got a beard, white robes, in the clouds, holding his hand out. Another guy looks exactly like him, holding his hand out. Who are they? Jesus and Lucifer. Brothers. That's what they teach. What do you think? What? There's like all kinds of problems with the scripture if you teach that. Not if you change the scripture. Denial of the incarnation of Christ, that God became man. 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. Well, they take out, come in the flesh. By the way, this, this reference here in 1 John was dealing with this very heresy. We use this. Anyone who says Christ has come in the flesh is a heretic. This, is what was, this verse was used against Arius and Arians. This is a key passage for us to use. Also, take it away, doesn't apply anymore. And here's my detail of exactly what I just said. <laughs> John was refuting Gnostic heresy at this verse by denying Christ has come in the flesh. Also, 1 Timothy 3.16, Acts 2.30. Other translations have to revise the Antichrist test. This change alone brings any translation into complete question. Think about that. This was a clear heresy that was happening. 
John gives us a clear definition of how you know someone who believes in this heresy. They take it away. It's not there. Accusing Jesus of sin. Matthew 5.22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry in his brother, with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, they delete without a cause, which makes it a sin to be angry, which causes a problem. Right? Whoever is angry as a brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. What's, a, what's the difference of a cause? A call, cause means it's legitimate. Smacked you. Stole your truck. Whatever. Right? Not a sin to be angry in that case. But if there's no cause and you're just angry with them, that'd be... We're all sinning all the time. Do you see this? And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and brought in the, bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Some use this passage in the New Translation to argue that Jesus sinned by being angry in this instance. You see this? Have you heard of the righteous anger of God? Heard that term? Do we see God angry? We do. So is being angry always a sin? Well, no. Psalm 7:11. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So this would indicate that Christ was teaching that God had sinned also. So if he said that, if he did, there was not without a cause in there, then he would be teaching that God sinned. See this? Denial of Christ's role in creation. Ephesians 3, 9, and to make all men see that is the, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So they delete, delete by Jesus Christ from the beginning, either deleted or changed to for ages past. So they change this to from ages past, or it's taken out, hath been hid in God, who created all things. Boom. Christ wasn't the creator, it was God. Why? Because Christ would be God if he had created all things. So you've got to take it out. So we'll have to stop there. We're out of time. I wish I could keep going and finish this section, but we're out of time. So let's close in a word of prayer.